Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Marv Bands. The Marv Band is the next big thing in player development. Marv's training patented handle design allows for more muscle activation and additional exercises, including movement prep for hitters, making it the go-to tool for arm care and hitting activation. Use code AOTC for 10% off of team sets and check it out at www.marvtraining.com. Today we have on the Chicago Cubs Major League Hitting Coach, Anthony Iaposi. Anthony was named the Cubs Major League Hitting Coach in October of 2018 after spending three seasons as the hitting coach with the Texas Rangers. Prior to joining Texas, he spent the previous three years in the Cubs organization as a special assistant to the GM while overseeing the club's minor league hitting program. He has been in a coaching and player development capacity since the 2006 season. On the show, we talk about working with some of the best players in the world and how we can be an advocate for them. We go over daily routines, which includes game planning and preparation, and we get into how we can best serve all of our players. This episode is so good with Anthony Iaposi. Anthony, welcome to the show. What's up, Jonathan? Glad to have, glad to be on, my man. Definitely, definitely. I'm definitely glad to get to really get to meet you. I know we've talked a little bit over the last couple of days, and, and during the time that we're in, it's really just good to get away and talk some baseball. So I'm really, really excited about that. And and for our listeners, guys, if you are listening, I really would encourage you guys to hit the subscribe button below, uh, just so you don't miss it, miss any good episodes. And also, I'd like it if you could rate and review the show, just to help get the word out on the amazing guests that we've had. And and Anthony's uh, giving us his time today, so make sure that that you guys go comment on that. But other than that, Anthony, I know that that we, uh, I would like to get to know you a little bit better, and I know that our listeners would too. So if you could give us a short snapshot of your baseball background and then how you decided to get into coaching. Yeah, so uh, I'm originally from from uh, Queens, New York, and played baseball my whole life, played basketball. Um, got drafted, uh, went to Lamar University, got drafted in the 33rd round. Uh, started playing baseball, played in minor leagues with the Milwaukee Brewers, Florida Marlins, and uh, in the Northern League uh, my last year with the Gary South Shore Railcats um, under Greg Taggart, who's a stud stud manager in the independent leagues. Um, from there, um, the Marlins asked me to start coaching 2006, and I started part-time, $12,000, uh, Jamestown, New York, who's the hitting coach there. Uh, fortunate enough to be around a lot of good young players from there, just kind of Moved up the chain, went to Greensboro the next year for full season, Jupiter for a couple of years, then got an interview with Toronto to become their hitting coordinator uh, in charge of the offense and, and player plans and everything that comes with that job. For three years, and went to the Cubs, uh, did the exact same thing, also went on some scouting duties, um, being the hitting coordinator there. And in 2016, I got my first chance at being in the big leagues as a coach or as a player, so definitely was a coach uh, with the Texas Rangers. Spent three years with them and then came back to the Cubs to be their hitting coach and just entering my second year today. So um, it's been a long journey. It's, it's, it's funny to say 20 plus years of professional baseball playing and coaching, but um, that has definitely helped me where I'm at today. I love that. And, and I think it's, it's really cool. It's it, it, cause you got to uh, one, you got to be a coordinator before you moved up, which I think is, 
is getting to know coordinators more and more. It's, it's such a multifaceted role that do you feel like that prepared you for doing the job and the day-to-day job that you've got now? The coordinator position uh, prepares you for the major league job, um, dealing with um, R&D data, uh, integrating every person in the organization that you're talking with. So it, it, people-wise, how to manage uh, grown-ups, you know, how to bring everybody together, not only in players but as a staff, definitely prepares you how to work with front office as well. So it's a, it's a unique perspective because you're going through all the affiliates, you're dealing with front office, you're dealing with the data department, you're dealing with the biomechanics of the swing, whatever it may be, uh, talking to, you know, uh, Hall of Famers that are in your organization, getting their feedback. So you're really integrating everybody within the organization to put out the product on the field. Um, the one thing it doesn't is, is being part of the team because that's the only thing I missed as being a coordinator is being in, in the dugout with your guys and the team that you're with uh, for 140, 162 games in the biggies as a coordinator. Uh, the challenge is a different way. You're, you're going in the dugout with multiple teams, but you're there for four or five days, three days sometimes, and then you're getting out and going to the next spot. So, you know, just when you feel a part of the team in, in the minor leagues as a coordinator, you got to pack up your stuff and get to the next city. So um, you have to go back to your minor league or to your playing days of, of that dugout feel and, and when to approach guys and how to do it as far as dugout coaching. I love that. And, and I'm really looking forward to, to getting to hear that aspect of it. Because again, I'm trying to learn as much as I can from everybody that's been in pro ball, just because I was hoping that during this time, I would have a pretty decent introductory course in it. But uh, as the listeners know that are listening today, uh, but if you're listening two or three years from now, then it's we're in the middle of COVID-19 and, and our seasons are suspended. Uh, but yeah, it, it's that that is really interesting, and and I hope you saved all of your Cubs gear from from the first time that you were there. Uh, put it in the back of the closet somewhere. But uh, with, with working with the best in the world, and and this is something that that I really didn't think about before. I did before, or when I started interviewing and doing some different things, and then getting into spring training. But when you're working with amateurs, it's it's just a different level of one expertise, but also knowledge of the game and experiences and uh, just the amount of time that they put in. And so when you're working with some of the best in the game, which you are literally some of the one per- the half of the one percenters of the entire world, how are you an asset and advocate for them? Because they got, they got there uh, for a reason. They're super talented. Uh, they can, they can play, but how are you helping each of them finding their, like, they're like a, uh, their point to where you can help them to get better every single day? I think it just starts with your, your preparation and, and not coming on too strong. And I've always taken that course, even with minor league guys, or even when I was, even I was playing, trying to help guys, uh, your, 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 your preparation, your, your patience with the players. But I think really just listening and watching over and over again, especially when you, you meet these guys in spring training or you meet new players that come into the organization, you want to listen and watch and just start small conversations before you get into anything, especially when it comes to the cage and somebody's swing. It's, it's so intricate and it's so detailed and, and the swing is so personal, you know? So anything somebody says against your swing, you do take it personal because you've been working on it your whole life. So you want to listen, uh, you want to watch them. Um, and they're going to tell you how they want to be coached. I think one of the first questions I ask players are who's your favorite player and why. And then whenever they say it, there's something in their swing. There's something in their approach. There's something in their stance. 
or how they, you know, run the bases or play defense, there's always in that player that they've admired growing up because that's how they learn to hit, right? You learn by hitting by, as a young kid, emulating big league players you see on TV. And today, a lot of kids are fortunate because they can emulate a lot of different hitters when they're young. You know, most of, you know, when I was younger, it was just the Mets or the Yankees. Uh, you get to watch on the TV, which is still better than what most people had. So um, you just kind of, and then you, you just want to gain their trust. I know like that everybody says that, but it's it's a big deal when you have to be in the dugout with guys for 162 games in the cage every day. You, the players are with the hitting coach more than any other coach in the on the staff or in the organization. So they're with you all day in the cage every day. Even the pitching coaches might split up their time between the bullpen guys and the starters, and they have multiple pitching coaches. But as the hitting coach, you are in the cage throwing balls looking at video or data or kind tracks, whatever it may be, talking about the pitcher, having lunch with them, seeing them on the plane. You're with them all the time. So to be able to establish that trust and, and that relationship, um, just by listening and watching in the beginning and, and really being patient to when um, that time comes and they ask for something, they find, you know, somebody says, hey, what do you got? You have everything. You're, you'll have the video ready. You'll have, the, you know, the numbers ready, the data, or whatever it is that you think is going to help them open up their eyes to maybe how they perform. But ultimately players want to be coached, right? Um, sometimes you got to make them think it's, it's their own way of doing it. You know, that's, that's a, that's an art of coaching, but for the most part, every player wants to be coached. You just have to figure out how they want to be coached. Is that something that you ask them ever? I don't really ask. I've never really asked them, how do you want to be coached? I think that comes through once you start to get to know them. And then if you say something that may come off weird or strange or something they don't like, if you establish that relationship in the beginning, they're going to tell you. And then nobody gets offended. I always feel that um, us working together in this working relationship every day, if we're in it for the right reasons, right, which is for you to perform to help the team win a World Series, you should never get offended of what I come to you because I'm always going to be ready. And I will never be offended when you call me out you know, for something that maybe I should have done or I didn't do. So I don't really ask them how they want to be coached. I think it's through the relationship uh, that you're able to have tough conversations, hard conversations without anybody getting offended. And then it kind of just rolls from there. So um, they're going to tell you eventually, you know, maybe they don't like to hear certain, maybe mechanical cues during the game, or they just want to hear approach, or they just want to know certain things about the pitcher that day and not talking about any other pitcher. So that gets established during spring training on the tee, flip work, machine, whatever it is, um, when it's just you and him and you're talking it out. And then eventually it all comes out on how they want to be coached. No, and that's, that's I, th I think if you ask them, I think if you ask them early how you want to be coached, they're not going to give you the straight answer right away because they, they don't know you that well yet. So they just might give you an answer you think you want to hear. You want like them to that. speak from the guts, you know? Mm-hmm. No, definitely. They, they, in the end, players want to please whoever is their coach yeah. and, and, yeah. you know, they want to have a good relationship. Uh, so I, I, I really like that. I like that answer a lot. And so you went from uh, being a coordinator to a major league coach, and then you left that organization to go back to uh, the Cubs. And so uh, whenever you left the organization, you're working with a whole new group and a whole new crop of uh, hitters. And I think you probably had a lot of those guys in the minor leagues with the Cubs, but how did you prepare yourself getting to know 
them before the first time that you stepped into a cage just to make sure that like you talked about preparation quite a bit how did how did you go about preparing to have those conversations in a cage whenever they were ready so going back to the going back to the cubs is that a question um yes going back to the cubs is the first job that i ever had where i went back to something familiar right so when i first started with the marlins that was new i go to the blue jays that was new three years later the cubs that was new Three years later, to you know, to the Rangers, that was new. So, and then three years after that, I go to the Cubs. So every three years, you were just kind of, kind of switching roles and switching jobs. Um, so I went back to familiar. So I think you were a lot more confident early on in your conversations with the players uh, because I did have a lot of those guys in the minor leagues uh, as a coordinator, and you know, you saw even guys that you know we we had traded through the minor leagues, you see them in the big leagues and you still have that relationship with them. Um, I think that the conversations went right off. The honesty went right off the bat. It's like, Hey, how you doing? Okay. What do you want to get better at this year? And how are we going to do it? You know, I mean, those were conversations right away from, from when I called the guys that, that I knew already. I think the only two guys, three guys um, I didn't know were Zobrist, uh, Hayward and Descalzo. And those guys are like super professional guys. Like, I mean, that's like meeting them for the first time. And then, you know, they've been around. So you could, you can have honest conversations right away. What do you want to do? What are the things that haven't worked in the past? What do you want to work on moving forward? And how are we going to do it? And then you integrate with them and you integrate with the guys you had before. So, you know, those conversations, it was just, I wouldn't say it was easy. It was quick to get to what you wanted to get to without having to wait through spring training to, to maybe uh, have a plan with somebody to talk about something. Definitely. And I bet that was really kind of neat. I mean, you see them on the other side of the dugout, but getting to get back yeah. into the dugout with those guys that you had had previously, I bet that's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and you see a lot of guys grow up and, and a lot of the, you know, one of the first conversations you had with players when you go back to somewhere familiar where you saw them in the minor leagues, especially with some of those guys have accomplished um, as a team and individually, you just, you let them know right away, like, bro, so proud of you. Like, what an unbelievable journey you had and you're not even like halfway done with it um, to be able to continue what, what you're doing personally and as a team and, and to be a part of that now on the, at the big league level with them um, is tremendous. It's pretty cool. That is cool. That is cool. And, and it's a credit to you that that many of those guys credit to obviously you and the staff there that that many of those guys made it to the big leagues, which is really, really cool. Uh, I think, but I think at that time, I think at that time we were, I, we were very, very lucky that like our scouting department um, on the international side and like on the amateur side and then and our professional scouting with the trades we made to get guys uh, from other organizations, you know, even guys like who got traded like Danny Vogelbach or Eloy Jimenez or Glaber Torres, Jameer Candelario, Marco Hernandez. They, are, they just did a tremendous job bringing everybody together and then it was kind of up to everybody else to just – mesh the culture and a winning culture together with these, with these really cool players. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple times, uh, game planning or, uh, well, I guess preparation before games. And yeah. this is an area that, that I know that, that I haven't gotten to dig into yet. And it's an area that's a weakness for me just because I haven't gotten to do it much. And so, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure that it's like that with your younger players too. They, they don't get the amount of information or haven't maybe in the past with the minor leagues, they don't get the amount of information that you get at the big league level. Uh, and so whenever you're preparing for games, 
one, if you can take us through what that looks like uh, just on a regular basis. And then especially whenever you're trying to integrate maybe younger players uh, or players who don't want as much information, just how do you kind of individualize it for everyone? I think it, for me, it started as a player. So I usually batted first or second and I never felt like I wanted to waste that first at bat. So I would, the only stats I would read was the stat sheet we had in a piece of paper and try to figure out what type of pitcher this guy was. So when I first started coaching, you know, that, that was all we had with the stat sheet in the locker room. So I would sit with the guys if we never saw the guy or baseball cube the guy's college stats and let the players formulate a game plan. Like how many walks does he have? How many strikeouts? What's his whip? How many hits per innings? Uh, is he a ground ball guy to ground out the air out and have the players read that and study that and then ask them questions on the pitcher. And we would have hitters meetings at, at the lower levels, not very long, but just to inform them to try and teach them to start educating themselves so that when relievers come in the game and you just have that stat sheet on, they go, okay, this guy has a lot of walks, probably good fastball, can't get anything else over. So they can start formulating plans. So I was kind of always into that. But, but you know, in the big leagues, it's, it's a lot different. It's a lot more advanced. It's a lot more information. I think as the group, when we have our, you know, I don't have, the advanced meeting, we like to call them like rallies, team rallies. They're get-togethers um, for, for, for teams and guys to get together, open up on how, not only how they want to talk about the pitcher, but just things that we need to work on, things that we, we could do better the next series or how we want to move forward the series after that. So everything is so individualized. The players just click in his name, click in Adam Wainwright, look at the matchup, watch how they were pitched, uh, adjustments from the last time. Some of our guys, say our big lefties, like to look at the last 40 at-bats off of power-hitting left-handed hitters, you know. So maybe Riz or Schwab or, or look at those types of things. And Jay Hay, look at how they face not only themselves, but similar hitters and how they were pitched. Um, you know, and then the team concept comes in. But again, hitting is the most selfish thing in sports, right? You're up there with your own thoughts and how you're pitched in your swing. And how do you integrate your individual ego into the team ego, right, into the team? Um, so I think from a team concept, it, it comes down to a few things. You're, you're either going to wait a guy out, you're going to jump on him early, you're going to just got to compete with two strikes, or you know we want to see a lot of pitches and, and let it evolve. So those are the team aspects. Or you're going to eliminate off speed, or you're just going to you know maybe we're just going to try and jam jam job this guy the other way for the most part. But from an individual basis, guys know how they're going to be pitched. That's how hard it is in the biggest. You have a pretty good idea of what might be coming and still impossible to get hit. So you're preparing them. And I think those thoughts come in. I mean, you could have team meetings and all that and go over everything, but the conversations are daily. You know, you could be sitting having lunch with a guy and they could say, you know, how's he been pitching, right? What's his fastball been doing? Or you come down, you put the ball on the tee and say, what's his last couple outings been like? So each guy that comes in, you're having some type of conversation about that starter that night on the daily, whether it's myself, uh, Sledge or Juan Cabrera who are in the cages with us or any any numbers of our staff. I like to use the whole staff. Like I like to use the first base coach, third base coach, bench coach, uh, Mike Napoli now as quality assurance coach. And, and you know, so every, not necessarily everybody is on the same page, just so that we're walking around and guys have any questions they could ask any coach. So, you know, the plan is you have, you have a little bit of the team plan of what you're trying to do. Uh, but individually, you got to set up your your plan for them. But the guys are so self self sufficient, man. The big leagues, it's it's pretty cool to watch them do their work on their own, and then if they have questions, they come to you. I love that. And, and this next question is it's kind of a 
you don't know. I mean, you've got to know the, the Rangers organization, but let's say that, uh, that you're just looking at an organization in general and uh, it's a selfish question because most of the listeners aren't necessarily minor league coaches, but what can we do, uh, as, as minor league staffs to help prepare our players better for when they get to you? So are there, are there any things that, that come to mind that you're like, man, I really wish they had learned this two years ago or three years ago whenever they were in the minor league so they didn't have to adjust on the fly against freaking Max Scherzer or somebody? Yeah, they're always going to be adjusting on the fly. I mean, the, the show is complicated. It's, it's filled with great people who aren't going anywhere that have been playing for five to ten years. The things that I always uh, tried to remind minor league coaches now, and even when I was coaching, I would try to remind the players is, is um, don't underestimate that players know how to practice, right? They don't, don't underestimate that they know how to manage their thoughts during the practice, right? So you could have a hundred drills in your back pocket, like every hitting coach does, like we all do, right? But if I had one drill that would satisfy everybody, wouldn't everybody be good at it, right? The best players manage their thoughts, so the drill doesn't necessarily fix the player. It's the thought process during the drill that improves the player. What is he thinking about during the drill? Not what he does, why and how he does the drill. What are his thoughts during that? Whether it's a physical thing or whether it's a target thing on the field. Um, so don't underestimate that they know how to practice. You got to teach them how to use their thoughts in their practice, how to manage adjustments in their practice, um, you know, uh, adjustments in the cage so that they happen quicker on the field without constantly asking questions and interrupting them. Um, I think the other thing too is don't underestimate something that you say a million times. It could be the first time a player has ever heard you say that. So you have to be so clear on what you're saying and thorough. We tend to rush through stuff all the time. Can't decide the ball, get on top, get underneath, use your legs, whatever it is. And if you say, you know, stay in your legs. And I say stay in my legs. We probably have two different visions of what that is. So you have to demonstrate. Um, don't underestimate the power of demonstrating either and doing it right. Um, but definitely uh, practicing, teaching them how to practice how, and, and how to compete in their practice against themselves. And the best players don't need anybody to compete against. They can put a ball on a tee and they'll go, tell me where to hit it. And they just want, they just want to be competitive against themselves. So challenging that, uh, teaching players to compete against themselves off the machine, T flips, whatever it may be. And then just really being accountable. The more accountable you can help the minor league players, the better off they're going to be. I never felt like I never wanted a player to rely on me. You, you want them just to know that you're going to be there and help them get through because ultimately he's the one that's got to get in the batter's box. We're sitting from afar, man. So they got to be accountable. And the quicker, the more they're accountable, the faster they'll develop. So those are the things. And then everything else revolves around those things. Drill work, teamwork, cage work. You could do all that stuff, but they don't have those other qualities. We're just spinning wheels. Well, that's fantastic. I love that. And I, <laughs> I've never really thought about that with the, with the drill work. And you and I talked yesterday about how important uh, knowing how the brain works and how, to, how we yeah. can change everything based on that. And, and that just that makes way too much sense uh, for that not to be common knowledge. So if you're, <laughs> if you're listening to this show right now, make sure you write that down. I, I am definitely, that is, that is definitely one thing I've learned in the last three minutes on top of everything else. But uh, let's say that, that, you, that you're working in the offseason maybe with some different players. So this one might be for more of the amateur side. And just because you've got so much access to, 
different things uh, with players that you're working with in your organization. But let's say that you're working with an amateur player in the off season and they send you some video and they're like, Hey, what do you think of this? Like, what do you think of this swing? Where do you kind of start? Uh, what are some, maybe some of your biases on like, I, I really like to see uh, most players do these couple of things or just kind of, you know, talk a little shop with us about what the swing should look like for most people and not everybody, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. First, it, there's never been a swing that's the same in the history of baseball. You know, it's a fingerprint. It's a snowflake. And you have to you have to acknowledge that first because we all have our biases of what the swing should look like, right? So, depending on how the on the guy on the guy's body works, uh, what he's been taught his whole career, where his strengths are. So, I like to I like guys for definitely to maximize their strengths as well as they work on their weaknesses. And I'll get to the swing. You know, when I was in Texas, and I'm flipping balls to Adrian Beltre at 39 years old. He's still working on his swing. So that part of the of, of practice never goes away. You're always, whether it's just small maintenance stuff, keep my front hip in, you're still practicing your swing. So you never think you want to have it figured out or this is the antidote or this is the answer. Or you have to figure out like this is going to be a time-consuming journey on your life if you want to be really good to practice your swing. You got to manage your thoughts, manage your emotions, and, and then put the physical and, and the mind-body connection together. Um, in the winter, when guys send me film, I want to make sure when they send me film, they tell me what they're hitting off. Is it flips? Obviously, I can see the T. Is it machine? Because what you notice a lot in practice is, is guys usually don't get the space or the stride to as they are in competition where they're really attacking uh, against their backside and really getting out there in their stride. So I want to make sure that they have space so that their lower half works efficient, so that their lower half, their, their legs and their hips are driving straight ahead and their hands are going forward along for the ride. Uh, I look at angles on where the bat is, make sure their grip is good because a lot of times we're trying to fix the angle of the bat and the guy's grip is is disordered. Um, I watch how he does the drill. Um, but all you, you usually back them because there's never any – there's not necessarily a, a wrong way I mean, what, what what's good for the player. Like if, if a player likes what he's doing and he's confident about it, um, I'm going to support him and then add little adjustments, I think, if they need it. But for the most part, what a player feels – is what I try to tell them. What do you feel? And they go, well, I feel like I'm pulling off. I feel like I'm just, I'm uphill or I'm around the ball. Then you're right. Whatever the player feels, then he's right. We could break down on video all day what it's supposed to look like, but really get inside of what he's feeling and then how to manage that through certain drills. And you, you know, you could put a list of drills. Again, it's the thought behind the drill. Like when you watch, when you watch big league players, even in the minor leagues, when you watch, potential big league players or big league players and I have to put my name on somebody when I was coordinator or coaching like yeah this guy's a big leaguer it wasn't because of what he did on the field it was because of mostly how he practiced it was just way different from everybody else on the minor league team it was quiet it was thoughtful it was a lot of self-talk where you're just kind of standing like is he done is he is he what is he doing you know but he's really talking to himself usually in a positive way of what he wants to do it wasn't the drills he was doing it was the intentfulness behind the work. So, you know, our cage, people send us stuff all the time, which I'm sure every other coach and every organization has, you know, from Frisbees to big bats to small bats to short bats to handles. And they keep them there for everybody. And if somebody believes in something and they're doing well with it, then you, you support them. You support them through it, you know. So, and then sometimes guys just aren't ready to hear certain stuff because they work so hard on some things. So you got to be supportive and then be ready when, they want to make that adjustment 
Um, but you definitely off season guys are willing to take more risks in their training than in, in season, especially young guys, because you're fighting for survival and you want to stay in the big leagues and you got to put up numbers and you got to get hits. Um, I think too, in the minor leagues to go back on the other question too, is guys need to practice getting hits, like being out front early, flexing through the front knee, getting blown up and staying through the ball and dumping one in two strike hits. Like you got to practice getting hits when you're not on time because most of the time you're not going to be on time. So being able to have an efficient swing is what hopefully guys are training to do in the winter and throughout the season. For sure. And, and that's, that's a great point. I know we talk about process a lot. If we're hitting the ball hard, it, it, it is a win, but it's, it, that's something that's, that you could argue that is not necessarily in our control all the time either, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the only sport where you do everything good, right? Steve Springer, you do everything really good and you go for four, you hit the ball on those four, four times. So, and then it's how you think about it and how you take it on the next day is what's going to separate the guys who stay in uh, funks in their mind longer mm-hmm. than other guys. Definitely. Definitely. I, I love that point. And so you, you mentioned that you don't want to really overhaul a swing in season, if at all possible. And so what's your process with helping guys that go through those funks that go through those struggles and, yeah. you know, and, and the amateur level for those, those listening, I mean, it's, you've got 30 games, so it's a lot faster. Right. And then yeah. with the 162, you may go through an over 30 stretch with 15 punch outs or, or just something like that. And, and, you know, some guys say you can't get too high or too low, but at the same time, it, that's not what the player's thinking. Right. And, and we, so obviously we've got to empathize with that, but kind of what's your process on getting them back on track, getting their mind right, letting them know that it's okay, that you've got that trust behind them, or just kind of walk us through what your process looks like with that. Yeah, I think I think you could in the minor leagues you have you have opportunities to maybe overhaul a guy if he's really struggling, and then you know as long as he feels he has backing from the organization, from front office and from the hitting coaches that he's gonna fail and it's not gonna feel good. That hey, we got your back. You know, we have you know this whole year, and then go into the winter to really iron it out. Um, as long as he knows he has that support and the backing from the organization, most of the time the minor leagues the players will 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 do whatever you ask if he thinks it's gonna help him. Um, in the big leagues, I think you just, you just take small, small victories each day, small W's each day. Um, you ask the player to maybe you got to take the hit out of it if he's not feeling good at the play. And usually when you're not feeling good, what happens is you hit a bunch of balls hard. You don't get hit. Now you try to make up for the hits. And for some reason, we always try to make up hits with homers to the pull side. And then we open up, pull off. And now our swing starts breaking down, right? And it's all because of our – we couldn't manage our thoughts and our emotions. So now you got to put them in some drills, um, maybe some uncomfortable uh, feelings for them. But, again, you've created the, the atmosphere early in spring to have these conversations, to make them feel comfortable, to be uncomfortable later when something happens. And for the most part, remember, if a hitter has his hands here and he moves them to here, that's a huge overhaul in their mind. Right. So the word overhaul is not just like crazy stances, hands high, spread out. Um, they're little, minu- you know, little minor things that as hitters, I remember watching a video of me. I thought I was doing something. And I was like, that is not what I'm thinking that I'm actually doing. And that was a huge learning process for me that when I got into coaching, like it's not the same. Your thoughts on what you're actually doing is not. Um, so I think you take small wins, like maybe how they took a pitch help the team win today, like see if you can eke out a walk, see if you can grind in that bat. Um, also maybe like, hey, 
you know, I've had players come to me and tell me, hey, Post, today I'm taking an 0 for 4, and I'm just trying to hit four ground balls to the opposite field to help get me back. And I've had, like, numerous guys say that, like Adrian, Elvis Andrews would always do that, and then he, and Ian Desmond, and then they'd always end up getting hits the other way to get them back on track. It builds your confidence. You make a left-hand turn around first base. You start feeling better in practice. Uh, you're not feeling like it's the end of the world because you're not getting hits and help the team win. So they'll sacrifice four to eight at-bats, back-to-back games, for the good of the rest of the season. And that happens multiple times during the season. I think if anybody had the true answer of how to get a guy uh, out of a funk, they would never go in a funk because they, <laughs> they would never get there if you're that great of a coach. But so many things happen in the corporate season and hitting and things that you you can't control. And when I was roving, you learn all these things from, from guys from AAA down to Venezuela, like, the majority of time, it's like the first thing you come in, how's everything off the field? Something's bothering them. You know, maybe it's a, a dad or their mom's on them or something's happening in their relationship or they didn't realize how hard baseball was going to be. They can't handle being away. All that plays into your your performance on a field. So they have to be able to learn to manage that. And I think with the big leagues, guys, you know, guys coming up struggle early because they don't know how to manage themselves, right? They want to show that they want to stick. They want to help the team win, and they want to do good. Those are things that, and not get sent down to AAA, right? So that's a negative. So now you're trying to manage all these things. The guys who stay the longest, especially when they get there, eliminate everything and just try and help the team win, right? It leaves all the pressure off of them as a young guy, and they just help the team win, and they get put in these situations, and they're productive, and then they end up playing longer. So when guys struggle, we just really try to help, you know, just help the team win somehow today. Even if it's defensively, that's going to help your offense. Um, you know, try to help the guy behind you if you're grinding that bat with two strikes. So, and then you're doing you're doing drill stuff in the cage. You know, maybe some one on one on the field. Let them get out there. Let them see some ball flight. Get them outside with the sun and some 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 clear skies. Whether their alone time is on the field. Um, so all that. But the hardest thing for them to to let go of is letting the team down, letting letting themselves down. So you try to do more. So it's actually we actually do less. In the beginning, if somebody's not feeling good, man, take it easy. Like, just take a couple of swings and show up, put, go in the batter's box, see what's going on, and then, you know, get get back to competing in the game, get back to that, stop feeling start, sorry for yourself, and go out and try and help the team win. Sure, and, and as you're talking about that, too, it, it sounds like, for me, and, and I don't know why this just occurred to me, but it sounds like you're <laughs> – and with those, with, with the things that you were talking about, ground balls to the other side, you're just trying to give them hope and kind of a, like a small goal to accomplish the next yeah. goal. So, so you're just giving yeah. them hope you that, can, hey, you can get out of this. Yeah, you could, you know, for the most part, you could control a ground ball to the opposite field. It doesn't have to be hit hard. But a lot of times when they do do that, they're like, oh, my gosh, I could do it. I could do something I set myself out to do. And then you know, they take the hit out of it and then they end up hitting, you know, somebody hangs a curveball and they hit a homer. Like you, you just don't know how it's going to happen, but you try to minimize their thoughts on, on maybe something they can't control and a hit is definitely something that they can't control. Oh, we got to love baseball. It is a, uh, a, yes. a, a, an interesting game. I was going to use an expletive, yeah. but we'll just go ahead and hold off on that. Uh, so with um, uh, something else that I think is really interesting and something that I think that, just hearing you talk and hearing you work through these processes, you're obvious, obviously you think that communicating with a player is extremely important. 
And so is that something that you've always done well? Is that something that you're continuing to get better at? And just give us some advice because obviously it's really, really important. But just what are some maybe tips and, and tricks that you use uh, to help yourself get better for the player's sake? I think everybody communicates, right? Everybody talks to each other for the most part, but I don't think everybody is able to connect. So you're, you have to ask yourself, how can I, it's not about communication. It's about connections. How can I connect with this player? What things do we have in common? What are, what are the things that he likes to do? Because you, you hear certain like coaches complain about certain players. He's uncoachable. Like those are the guys you want to coach, right? Those, those are the guys because the one he may be uncoachable because he's super confident in what he believes in, right? So you got you to gotta feed that to him. But then you also got to find out what things get him going. Could it be just football talk about the New York Giants? Or could it be, you know, who his favorite player is? Or things he likes to do off the field, his interests, his hobbies, or things he studied in college, or where he grew up, you know, taking him back to those places. For me, I always try to go back to where they were, like in high school and in Little League, right, when we were all the best player. And we felt the most confident, right? And it wasn't a drill or what team it was. It was who I was. I was just trying to be dominant on the field. So I always try to go back to those places and then start a connection through there. But really just, just asking them advice as well. I think starting, starting with connections, you ask them for advice for other players, making that connection and using them for other players uh, helps everybody feel good. Um, I think it's just about really connecting with the guys. I mean, because we could communicate with paper, video, data, movies, but in order to be with a person every single day, you got to have some type of connection and you got to dig and find it. You got to find those nuggets. I absolutely love that. It's not about communication. It's about connection. And I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, something else that, that you talked about communicating with your players, you, you, you've used this term a couple of times, not necessarily today, but as I was doing some research about you, you talked about opportunity hitting and instead of situational hitting. And you've referenced a couple of times helping the team win. And I, obviously at the big league level, that's important. You've got to help the team win. And so tell us about a little bit about opportunity hitting, why you decided to call it that instead of situational hitting. And then how do you get big league guys who are wanting to get paid, mucho dollaris, how do you get them to buy into going over situational hitting stuff? Yeah, how do you get guys to to maybe give up in that bat when they have a chance mm -hmm. to get a hit to maybe sacrifice an out to get the runner in? Right. It's, you gotta you gotta make the guys feel that they're they're being in part of something bigger than themselves. You know, as far as winning World Series and maybe changing the lives of millions of people in the city that you live in or around the around the world like they have an opportunity right. to do that every night i think absolutely you know i think with situation i think you know like people really don't talk about rbis anymore which is crazy to me because if it was that easy everybody could do it right certain guys could hit 30 homers and drive in 55 and then every time there's a runner on third base they can't get the guy in because they punch out so uh, the guys who are able to do it manage their emotions in those situations it's not, I think when you bring up situations, guys put pressure on themselves and that, that's all it is to that situation. These are opportunities. This is an opportunity to help your team. This is an opportunity for you to get RBIs. This is an opportunity for you, for the, the pitchers, the one on the mound who, who should be nervous, not you at the box. So these are all opportunities, not only for the team, but for yourself. These are opportunities for yourself to make more money, right? They're not necessarily situations. So take advantage of those opportunities. So that's kind of what, what that came from. And, and I talked about it with Joe last year, Joe Madden, and he kind of ran, we called it the opportunity, um, 
uh, opportunity hitting field. And then he would run drills with small balls and call out, call out, you know, different situations where guys were on base and things like that. And we would just constantly try to talk to guys about this is, this is your opportunity. Like when you're a kid, all you do is go three, two bases loaded, two outs, ninth inning, boom. Like what changes now that it's real. Okay. So it's just, it's all about opportunities, man. So, and every year that'll change. I try to find different ways of, of making guys see the bigger picture of the team. Definitely challenging. Absolutely. And again, we, you, you alluded to it earlier. We coach a selfish game and we play a selfish game and, and getting everybody to work together and buy into the team concept is not, not an easy thing to do. So I appreciate you going in uh, to some detail with that. And so uh, another thing that, that I've, I've heard several times from guys uh, in similar positions as you is, is getting guys to really uh, buy into their pregame routines, uh, getting them to understand why that's important. Uh, and game planning can pro- probably be part of that. But also I'm thinking about just drills, uh, drill set, uh, how many swings, what that looks like. Uh, so how, how important is that uh, for you? How do we teach it? And, um, and obviously, is it important to you? Um, because you may have a differing opinion, but um, that's just something that I had heard a couple of times. So I was curious on your thoughts about it. Yeah, I think I think the routine starts when you get to the field. Like if if you don't have a good daily routine, your your cage routine or your pregame routine is not going to be as good anyway. So you try to talk to guys about when they get to the field as far as their lunch, their weightlifting, their video work, their opposing pitcher work. All that has to be a routine set up there. And the best players really love and enjoy that process throughout the day of guys that I've been around and been able to work with. Um, I think you have your you have your routine where the guys come down to the cage and their drill work. Everybody's a little bit different uh, before batting practice. Um, and then each routine is, it might be a little bit different. So uh, what I have learned is a lot of the guys over the last few years have really been high T in it because uh, the most fastballs, most elevated fastballs in the history of baseball was last year. It was pretty high. So players are trying to work from the top of, from the top of the zone down and from as far as their uh, work in the cage, they're working from low to high that makes sense right because the t's high so they want to go down and then work up because they want to be able to get on top of the elevated fastball on the top doesn't mean ground balls off you know the pitcher's feet but in their mind that might be it's still to drive the ball to the middle field in the outfield so each guy's routine is different i would say um some of the guys routine changes off of machine depending on who's pitching with guys secondary pitch on what they might see or whether they might see a lot of high fastballs, they want them to set the machine up. Um, and some of the guys will do that early. They might text you or call you early and say, hey, can you get to the field a little bit earlier? The coaches are already there. Um, so you'll have that set So they have that time where they don't feel rushed if they want to add something to their routine. I would say time-wise, before batting practice, guys range from 7 to 14, 15 minutes, somewhere around there. Then their BP routine. Um, again, we might talk about the picture we're facing. Guys have set routines in BP that we talked about. Um, but some guys will incorporate their picture that day. And then before the game, for the guy, not everybody hits before the game. Um, it's definitely like super uber focused. There's hardly any talking. It's usually, you know, BP, short swings, machine, something that they think they're going to see, something competitive or hard. Um, and then also some guys just do – We'll just do flips, uh, a shortened routine of what they did earlier, maybe like 10% of what they did earlier before the game. 
because it gets crowded, man, and guys don't want to get in each other's way because then they got to go out and perform. Um, so, it, you know, each guy's routine, again, is different, right? Every swing is different. Every thought process is different. Um, but each one, each one has a little bit of facing the pitcher that night, whether it's pregame, BP, or right before the game when they hit. And how much space do you have at Wrigley? I'm, it's an older stadium, so I'm assuming you don't have a ton. Yeah, but they, they redid it, and it's, it's the most gorgeous place in sports, I think. I mean, all around, outside, inside, underneath is phenomenal. We have two cages underneath. We have plenty of space. We have TVs all over. It's it's, it's incredible workspace for guys um, to just come hang out and eat lunch and, and talk ball and talk baseball and just talk about life. So we have the two cages, and then we have enough coaches to where, you know, once a week, the guys like to do their routines on the field and get outside. Like I said, they'll bring the tee out on the field or they want me to flip or short pitch or set the machine up um, on the field, you know, before practice starts. So they're just by themselves so they can take more swings or really maybe want to interact and talk more where they're not backing up the cage. So you definitely have – we have plenty of space. Um, where on the field, you could have three guys hitting at one time in two cages and one at the field if we really needed to. So – my, my biggest that, thing is cage flow and nobody being rushed in their work. Mm-hmm. No, that makes, makes a ton of sense. What about, uh, again, and, and an opportunity for us, right. Uh, is getting to work with, with players who don't necessarily speak English as their first language, which for the most part is Spanish, but also, uh, different languages as well. Uh, what is your, what is your best advice on how we can best uh, serve those guys and serve those players? Learn the language. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's something, it's something that the older you get, the harder it is to, to learn a language. You really have to bear down and get after it and really just go down to the DR and the academy and spend three months there so you can prove it or just watch Telemundo every day. You'll, you'll figure it out. Um, I think understanding, I think with, with Latin American players, you really, one, if you have the opportunity to go down there and experience it, for me, it's truly remarkable when a player from the Dominican Republic gets to the big leagues with such little they had, you know, which, which everybody says, but with the passion and how much they practice though every day is, is, is awesome. You know, they don't necessarily need to have the best tools growing up just like anywhere else. Everybody thinks you have these extravagant cages and batting facilities, but it's not the facility who makes the big leagues. It's the person who's hitting in the facility that makes the play, who walks into that board uh, is the big leaguer. Um, You know, when I would be presenting to Dominican Republic or Latin players when we come in, whether it's, you know, on a dry erase board or, you know, some type of PowerPoint video, uh, you find out who your best coaches are. And they don't have to be hitting coach. It could even be uh, a pitching coach who's Latin American that could translate it like the way you want to say it, not just some type of translator like in an English class, but somebody with the intent behind it, the passion behind it that to deliver it. And then also in the cage, I, you know, I would take players who have been through what that player has been there before. And I would have a player translate to the other player, maybe a little bit older. I said, and I would ask them, Hey, you have some time. Can you come in? I got these young kids. They're always willing to help. And those are the best guys because the players respect the players more than anybody who, who made it over and have been able to stay in America for years playing. So and then I would also video, when I was coordinating, I would interview uh, Latin American players who've been in long season and then bring it back to Dominican Republic and play it like as a movie um, to let them hear from guys they know, 
you know, and, and, uh, and all the things that are most important for them, like, you know, working hard, learning English language, asking questions. So um, using is using your coaches for sure and other players when you get in a cage, you know, to deliver that message that you really want to deliver and you really need to hit in between the eyes. You better bring somebody in there who understands what you're talking about. If you're Because you can work in one-on-one with them, like on a swing, isn't that difficult. It's why and what they need to do to get to the big leagues, that's when it becomes challenging to, to mm-hmm. really interact. Well, and, and you would know this better than I would too, even, but how many good conversations come from players talking to each other about what they're trying to accomplish anyways? All of them. Mm-hmm. All conversations. All, convers- all great conversations start with players talking with each other. You could just bring up a topic and then sit back for an hour. That, absolutely. Well, Anthony, I know that, uh, that I promised you an hour, but I do have some lightning style questions before you go, just to, again, get to know you a little bit more personally and, and to get to dig into some of the resources that, that we were really sharing before the show. I know you, asked, you said that you're a voracious reader and you're asking what I was reading, but what's something that you, that you learned lately that's gotten you really excited? You know, the Zoom meetings I like. I never really did them before. Unfortunately, we have to have them, but through there I've met like, some some really cool uh, college coaches and other coaches and organizations uh, and other sports as well. So learning how to do that stuff, I think also learning um, uh, using the iPen for app called Good Notes. I've been writing stuff on that. I started that right before all this happened in spring training, and I, I love doing those type of things, um, writing all my notes on that instead of having papers all over the place, which I still do. I've heard that a friend of mine yeah. has an iPad and, and does that all the time. My handwriting's terrible, so I have to type. But I've I've heard that that's uh that's really yeah, cool. it's pretty good, and it's got all the colors. It's it's great. It's great. Mm-hmm. And you can uh you can do the dictation too. I think that'll yeah. that'll type yeah. it out for you. Well, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. I have to dig into that. Uh, what is something that you know that if you were like, hey guys, we're doing this today, you know your players would love it. It could be a drill. Uh, it could be a competition. Anything like that. Um. I would think it's not so much uh, the competition. It's sometimes it gets the challenging part at Wrigley Field to do things on the field all the time is the day games. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday are day games. And then one more during the week. So you're asking some, some, even some older players to, to get up earlier to try and get to the field. I would think um, some of the things that we like to do are in our, in our rallies, uh, having players talk about where they're from, where they grew up, pulling it up on Google Earth, um, sometimes add some, some quotes or poems that I've made up that I tell them that I found. Um, I think they enjoy that a little bit. So any, anything competitively obvious when you have the group, but again, it gets more challenging during the season because of all our time changes with Wrigley field spring training. They love to be challenged, uh, anything, especially when it's, uh, you know, calling out rounds and they like to, to compete with each other. So calling out rounds of BP when they're together on the field would, would probably be number one. That's really, really good. I, I like the Google Earth thing too. That's that's a that's one that I haven't yeah, heard before, uh, but I think that's really cool. That's right here, bro. <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. where I grew up. Nice. I call it where that's did it great. start? So I give them a couple of days in advance. A stickball? Yeah, that was that was stickball in the story of Queens. That's awesome. So I take I that, that wherever I go to never forget, like whether it's something like this, whether it's on a stage, whether it's during our, our rallies with the team. Spring, it stays in my bag, and whenever I'm kind of feeling something, I pull that up and remember why you played. And that's the reason why, like, you try to create this cage atmosphere 
to 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 this atmosphere when you were a kid, right? Where you you play with freedom and not be judged, and every decision you made was on your own. So that's the biggest thing that you could teach players in the minor leagues and provide that atmosphere to be free and not be judged. Because you can't practice if you're worrying about what everybody else thinks about you. Absolutely, I love that. I'm I'm gonna have to do that myself. That's a great great exercise. Uh, I'll so, talk to you about it off the off of this. Yeah. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty cool. Definitely. Um, so another thing that, <laughs> that I'm trying to do is, is I'm trying to stay out of kangaroo court, trying to stay out of the box. And so um, I'm, I'm asking everyone what their biggest coaching pet peeves are, just so I don't have to pay an, an exorbitant amount of money next spring training like I did this one. So what's your biggest coaching pet peeve that you see from other guys? Uh, coaching pet peeves. So that would be to other coaches? Yeah, just something usually, that you're like, right, man, say, you got no feel for that. I would say – this goes for coaching too, is uh, selfish cage work. Like you don't have time for an hour lesson. You don't have time for that. You have to manage your time and be able to work with guys. Like there's nothing more than I can't stand when the cage is getting backed up, especially when I was coordinating and you walk through spring training and you have these set times for guys and the cage starts getting full. And now players are turning around to see who's, who's hitting next. The other players are rolling their eyes because they're supposed to be in there. And now they have somewhere else to go. They have to get their defense on. And now their cage time is going to get cut short because the player, the coach is either over coaching or the players over practicing, right? Get your cage work in, do what you need to do. Feeling good, feeling, feeling good is overrated, right? You got to be able to walk out of the cage feeling bad and still get hits tonight. That's uh, Anthony Rizzo said all the time. He's like, you take a bad BP, now what? So you can't really cure every single day in the cage. So respect everybody's cage time because somebody, especially in spring training, somebody else always has something else to do after whether it's defense, whether it's weightlifting, nutrition, meeting, whatever it can be. And then during the season, it's the same thing. Maybe they have neuroscouting or video or they have to go meet catcher and he has to go meet with the pitchers or it's an infield, he has to go meet with the defensive guys. But I think as coaches, you get in a cage and you think nothing else on the players matters, which in turn, like I want to get them in and I want to get them out and keep them fresh, keep their energy going and have them go to the next station or the next phase of their, their practice that day. So if not, if it doesn't work out, said, look, we'll get back in it later, come back and do what you got to do. So I don't absorb other people's time in the cage because it's, it's uh, for me that that drives me nuts. I'll just yell it out. The time, <laughs> get out. <laughs> I like that. You're from Queens. So I'm sure you're not afraid to, to say what's on your mind. Assuming. Uh, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Again, that comes with relationships. If you have sure. good communication and, and connections with the coaching staff as well, they get it, you know, so. <laughs> It's good yeah. times. Uh, what is something that you failed at lately that you don't mind sharing? I know when we talked, I was laughing because almost anything in the house I tried to do, uh, fixing wise or put a bike together or, you know, build something. And then my wife's like, has, she's leading the league in saves right now, even though MLB I love that. does yes. have a season, but my wife, Suzanne, is leading the lead in SAGE. She's teaches our youngest daughter school for, you know, the few hours of the day that we have to have, three or four hours. And then she does everything else, you know, that, that I mess up trying to fix. Oh, well, I'll put this together. I'll go out in the garage and build the bike. And then, you know, the handlebars are on the back of the part of the wheels. So uh, I lose patience when it comes to that stuff. And it's crazy because you're in hitting where you have the most patience as a, as a, as a hitting coach. So pretty much everything – I've tried to do in the house, even when I thought it was great, there was still something wrong with it. And then here comes Sue, just what, you know, save number 45 of the, of the time being home. I'm telling you, I am, we're putting in new flooring next week. 
So, um, if, if my wife has not, uh, is not second in the saves category, then she will probably be close after that. Cause, uh, I, I'm, I'm like you, I, I really enjoy being on a baseball field. I don't really like doing anything with, with flooring or wood, but what were you going to say? Yeah, I think, I think for me, it comes from like all those years in the minor leagues where you're, you're in a apartment, like two bedroom apartment with five guys, like, and you, you just, you just learn to live and get away from the field. So now that you actually have a home to live in and you're living with the family like you're like oh my god okay this is i'm gonna stay here all right so things need to be fixed and done right so oh, definitely with you and it's something that i i like learning and it, it's frustrating doing stuff I like know. that and not being good at it but i'm kind of trying to practice what i preach so <laughs> i know it stinks it like it just flat out stinks like okay I'm going to put together this and you start out and then, mm -hmm. you know, kids yelling in your ear and you're about an hour in it and you haven't gotten anywhere. Mm -hmm. it stinks, man. Yeah. I, YouTube is, is a godsend for guys like us for sure. <laughs> and so, uh, finally, what are some of your favorite books and resources that have helped shape your coaching career? Uh, so many, man, so many to choose from. I would, I would like any mental stuff, but I would say baseball books are, I read not for necessarily, and I, I use it as a structure, but like, like history of the game more stuff like that. I, I started rereading like old books from when I was a kid, Yankee books, even old, old hitting books from Tony Gwynn, Don Mattingly, Wade Boggs. I was reading Dusty Baker's again the other day from from the '90s. I love biographies. I'm not, I, you know, we all know how where a person gets to, but we never find out like how they got there and the work, the sacrifice, or whatever it took. From to get there so i love biographies and not just in sports anywhere business i love business books we were talking before about like you know uh, culture books team team stuff like that um coach k i love coach k books phil jackson um vince lombardi all you know it, it's weird because i really love things outside of baseball and then try to figure out how to bring those those topics um into baseball uh, the, the latest book I read I loved was uh, Creativity, the Pixar book. Um, super cool, man. One of my most highlighted um, books on, on how they built something and, and made it to where it is today and all the times they failed. So that was pretty cool. And then just kind of, you know, your podcast, Stick and Ball TV podcast I've been listening to, uh, uh, Up in Smoke, NBA one, and then uh, Steve Kerr. And listen to that that's one. That's such a good one. That's God, pretty that's cool. That's a good one. Uh, Eric Cressy has one. He has a lot. Uh, I've just been listening to with a lot of a lot of players on there. I love hearing from the players. I love hearing. Yeah, from the, the one with Mil. I think it was Will Middlebrooks who he yeah. he talked yeah. about. That one was really good. And, yeah, it was really you know, good. I grew up a Red Sox fan, so getting to see him and and he had a fantastic season. Then he just talked about some of his transitions. Uh, of what he think went wrong and then how he tried to fix it. And that was so fascinating to me because again, we deal with guys that are going to be going through that stuff. So getting to hear yeah. someone go through that, come out of it, be better and, and then go, but you know, just the ups and downs of it. Uh, but uh, if, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, I, I'll link your Twitter account below. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah. It's up there okay. or, or Instagram, LinkedIn, okay. they're, they're all, you know, just type in the name, but yeah, you could link that. Perfect. I will, I will put that down there for you. And, and I'm going to open up the mic for you, put myself on mute and just say, is, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? I think to like parents, uh, I've been able to coach guys from like all over the world um, to get to the big leagues. And that's, 
you know, guys from Ohio Division Two, Ryan Rua with the with the Texas Rangers, and David Bodie uh, with the Rock, uh, Kevin Pilar, uh, David Bodie from Colorado with the Cubs, uh, Kevin Pilar, thirty third rounder, thousand dollars sign. You know, he's got almost nine years in the big leagues. It's, it's, it's not like everybody has a different journey. I know uh, I enjoy talking to parents about uh, they have so many questions and almost fear in how they talk and the money that's being spent. And trust me, I train guys during the winter and things like that. But uh, if you're good enough and your, your kid loves it and they're passionate about it, they're going to find their way to where they need to get to, whether it's college ball, hopefully professional if that's what they want. But there's no reason to to panic and feel like these kids have to go in all these all these different directions to get seen to play. Uh, people are being scouted today in all different ways. So I've coached guys from Korea, Shinsu Chu, Curacao, Dominican, Venezuela. When you're good enough, somebody's going to find you. And again, it may take a different journey. And I think everybody was asking, you know, what's the what's the next best thing? And I heard it on the the. Steve Kerr Carroll podcast and they were talking about like the next best thing is, is is really like just finding really good coaching and really good people who can integrate everything um, that comes with coaching whether it's data whether it's swing whether it's mental we have all these other pieces and we bring in all these pieces together but especially as a hitting coach for you coaches out there you got to be able you can't be persuaded by one way or another you have to be able to handle everything you have to be a hybrid coach um, and you can't you can't land a fence too far one way or the other. You can't be some okay. I'm just a data driven, or I'm just a mental skills. Like you have to be able to do everything, bits and pieces. There's too many players um, who are going to use different types of things and may not. So yeah, it's your job as a coach to to be informative, um, but also not only be informative but to learn from everything and take those pieces and and kind of make it your own and decide what type of coach you want to be mostly uh, try to help you is like just be a hybrid coach be able to handle everything thank you for listening to ahead of the curve you can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform which can include apple podcasts google spotify stitcher or youtube and if you're enjoying the podcast please share it on social media to help get the word out once again thank you for joining us